In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at Sira Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to seerahintensive.com to register and for more information. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Inshallah, continuing with our study of Shama'il Muhammadiyah, the prophetic personality. Chapter number two that Imam Tirmidhi here um, brings now. Babu ma ja'a fi khatamin nubuwati. That the chapter about the seal of prophethood. Babu ma ja'a fi khatamin nubuwa. The seal of prophethood. Now, one of the things is that this is referring to a physical description of the Prophet ﷺ. The seal of prophethood, the khatam of nubuwa, the seal of prophethood, was a physical feature of Rasulullah ﷺ. Now, based off of that, it should be addressed within the previous chapter, which was khalqu Rasulullah ﷺ, the physical description of the Messenger ﷺ. So this does belong with the previous chapter. However, the, because of the fact that two things. Number one is, even though the physical description of the Prophet ﷺ is of course unique by virtue of the fact that every person is unique. Secondly, of course, the Messenger ﷺ did have some very striking and very interesting uh, features that contributed to who he was and his interaction with people and his personality. At the same time though, what we talked about was the fact that his hair was like this, or his height was as such, or his physical structure was like this. Um, and so it was a description of something that is a part of any person's uh, physical structure at the same time. The khatam, the seal of prophethood, is something that's a little bit more unique to the Prophet obviously. It's something that's exclusive to him. So by virtue of the fact that this is something exclusive to the Prophet ﷺ, secondly, the fact that the Prophet's hair was of a particular length, or his eyes were of a particular color, so on and so forth, that in and of itself was not necessarily a sign of his prophethood. Right? The fact that his hair was like this or his eyelashes were long or whatever, that's not necessarily a sign of the fact that he is a prophet. This physical feature of the Prophet ﷺ, that seal of prophethood that he had on his physical body, that is a sign of his prophethood, right? This is something that is in agreement of the scholars. There are a, a, a collection of narrations which allude to the fact that this was actually a sign of his prophethood. So based off of these two things, number one, it is exclusive to the Prophet ﷺ, and number two, <clears throat> it is actually a sign and an evidence of his prophethood. Because of that fact, Imam Tirmidhi rahimahullah ta'ala brings a separate chapter just to discuss this issue. 
So yes, it is another physical feature of the Messenger Wasallam, but it is a special, unique, exclusive physical feature of the Prophet Wasallam, and even miraculous, as we will talk about. <clears throat> Before we actually uh, get started, or why don't we go ahead and go through the narration so we at least have a physical description of the feature, and then inshallah we'll talk about some of the uh, other details pertaining to it. So the very first hadith, as mentioned by Imam Tirmidhi here, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَبُوْ رَجَاءٍ قُتَيْبَةُ بْنُ سَعِيدٍ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا حَاتِمُ بْنُ إِسْمَاعِيلٍ عَنِ الْجَعَدْ بِنْ عَبْدِ الرَّحْمَانِ قَالَ سَمِعَتُ السَّائِبَ بْنَ يَزِيدٍ يَقُولُ ذَهَبَتْ بِي خَالَتِي إِلَى النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ فَقَالَتْ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ فَمَسَحَ رَأْسِي وَدَعَالِي بِالْبَرَكَةِ وَتَوَضَّأَ فَشَرِبْتُ مِنْ وَضُوئِهِ وَقُمْتُ خَلْفَ ظَهْرِهِ فَنَظَرْتُ إِلَى الْخَاتَمِ بَيْنَ كَتِفَيْهِ فَإِذَا هُوَ مِثْلُ زِرِّ الْحَجَلَةِ I'll go ahead and translate first and I'll explain some of the concepts here. As-Sa'ib ibn Yazid radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, My aunt took me to the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And she said, O Messenger of God, my nephew is suffering from some physical pain. My nephew either has some pain or an injury. So he placed his hand on my head. And he made dua for me for well-being. The Prophet ﷺ then performed wudu. And I drank from the water that was left over after his wudu. I then went and stood behind him. And I looked at the seal of prophethood between his shoulders, on his back, between his shoulder blades. And I saw that it was like a knot on the edge of a bed. It was like a knot or a knob that would be on the edge of a bed. Now to go ahead and explain exactly what the narration is saying. As-Sa'ib ibn Yazid radiallahu ta'ala anhu was a younger sahabi as you can obviously infer from the narration itself. He was a younger Sahabi. <clears throat> he says that my aunt took me to the Prophet ﷺ. Now Ibn Hajar rahimullahu ta'ala, um, also I wanted to mention about Sa'ib ibn Yazid, narrations tell us that he was born in the second year of Hijrah. He was born in the second year of Hijrah, which places his age at the passing of the Prophet ﷺ at eight. So this was probably towards the end of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. So he's a child, right? So he's narrating this narration even though he was probably maybe six, seven, eight years old, which is not unheard of. Some other Sahaba also narrated a few narrations even in their childhood. They were able to remember. <clears throat> the second thing is, is that the reason why it's important to note that he's a child, first of all, his aunt is bringing him. Secondly, the way the Prophet ﷺ interacts with him is also very noteworthy. So now his aunt is the one who brings him. Who is this aunt? Ibn Hajar rahimullah ta'ala, he actually in his research, he says that I did a lot of research, but I was lam aqif ala ismiha. In Fathul Bari, Ibn Hajar says that I did a lot of research, but I was not able to find the name of the aunt. So which aunt of Sa'ib this must have been, I'm not able to confirm that. But nevertheless, it was one of his aunts. Um, Khalati means it was the sister of his mother. It was a maternal aunt. 
And so she brings him to the Prophet ﷺ. He says, she brought me to the Messenger ﷺ. And she said that my nephew has some pain. <clears throat> now typically, now this waja, what is this waja? So some narrators, when looking at this particular narration, waja just means pain. He has some type of pain. Looking at the narration, the fact that the Prophet ﷺ placed his hand on the child's head... Some commentators rush to the conclusion that he must have had some pain in his head. And that's what the Prophet ﷺ, that's the reason why he placed his hand on his head. However, there are other narrations which very clearly uh, state the fact, that he had pain in his leg. There are multiple other narrations. When you actually go and search for the other narrations, you find the fact that he had pain in his leg. He had injured his leg. And so the Messenger وسلم, what he does for the remedy of his pain is that he makes dua for him. He makes dua for him. Alright? And what dua did the Prophet ﷺ make? He doesn't necessarily say here, but in some other narrations, he mentions that the Prophet ﷺ made dua for my health. That's the most he says. But here he says he made dua for me for barakah, for blessing. May God bless you. May he preserve you. May he protect you. May he grant you a long life. May he grant you health. Right? That type of a dua. Right here there's a lesson in and of itself. A lot of times people are very fixated on the idea or the fact that there has to be some type of a structured dua with exact wording for each and every single ailment. So people will come and they will say, what's the dua that I should make if my leg hurts? And the answer is, oh Allah, make the pain in my leg go away. Right? What's the dua to make if my back is giving me trouble? Oh Allah, take the trouble away from my back? I don't know. Right? That's it. My head hurts. Oh Allah, relieve the pain in my head. That's the dua to make for a headache. Right, So there's not some type of like specific verbal, people are always looking for some type of specific verbiage for every single thing that they need to make dua for. And that's not, the Prophet if there would have been a dua, the Prophet if the Prophet would have made the dua specifically, that would have become the dua for it. But that's not what he did. He just said, oh may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give you barakah, may give you health. Because the Prophet if something comes out of his mouth, it becomes sharia. It becomes Islam. And so the Prophet ﷺ did not want to set this precedent, create these expectations, that there will be some type of specific verbiage and specific dua for each and every single thing. He didn't want to create that idea. And the Sahaba understanding that, that even if the Prophet ﷺ did make more of a specific dua, they wouldn't relate it. But they would just say, with the Ali. Many times you'll see in narrations, Ali bi khayr. I told the Prophet ﷺ, I'm dealing with such and such, Ali bi khayr. He made good dua for me. He made a good dua for me. Like he said, oh may Allah give you, alleviate your debt, or may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help you with your problem, or may Allah help you in your situation. But even the Sahaba wouldn't relate the exact word, verbiage of the dua, because they had learned from the Prophet ﷺ that that's not important. And then on top of that, you find this idea that's very prevalent, that people will try to infer things. They'll find an ayah of the Qur'an that talks about head, right? The word head is mentioned in a verse of the Qur'an. And then they'll read that verse as a remedy for a headache or something like that. There's these weird notions and ideas that are out there. 
none of it has any validity. The dua for a headache is, oh Allah, I have a headache, please help me. Right? And that's it. So that's why he says he made dua for me for barakah, for health, for good, for good things. Alright? Like many times in other narrations, it says, Ali bi khair. He made dua for, for me in a good manner. Like a good dua for me. Alright? So now what the Prophet does is to remedy the pain in his leg as he makes dua for him. But the Prophet placing his hand on his head, now we understand wasn't some form of remedy, right? Not some cure by the touch, not to say that the Prophet did not ever do that. There are some miraculous incidents from the life of the Prophet like Ali bin Abi Talib suffered um, an injury on his feet, on his legs, and the Prophet applied his saliva to it and it remedied him. Right? In the Battle of Badr, a Sahabi says that his eye was injured very badly to the point where they thought that he had lost his eye. And the Prophet ﷺ applied his saliva and you know, placed his hand on his eye and made dua for him. And his eye became remedied, right? His eye was fixed. So much so that later on in his life when he would tell this story, his grandson is asking him and he's telling his grandson the story. And then his grandson asked him, which eye was it? And he goes, I can't remember. Because not, there was not the slightest bit of defect or fault in the eye. Right? So there were instances like that. But nevertheless, here, that's not what the Prophet is doing. And the reason why he places his hand on his head is a form of affection. Right? Showing love, showing affection. At-talattuf. To show love, to show affection, to show compassion. That's what the Prophet is doing here. Right, so a bunch of lessons that we learn from this. Obviously, we see that, you know, just overall when interacting and dealing with children, that one should be loving and compassionate and affectionate with children. Right? And show that type of love and affection to them. Number two, you also see here that just generally speaking, we pick this up, and of course, there's tons of, you know, whether it be called bedside manner or it's called etiquette, or even there's even research about it. Somebody sent me an article recently as well um, that it talked about how just, you know, physically even showing some compassion or some um, affection towards a person, right? Whether it be just placing your hand on their hand or just sitting close to them when somebody is suffering through some illness or ailment, that it can actually help the recovery of the person. And it actually helps to calm and ease the person, right, through their pain and their suffering. And we learned that from the sunnah of the Prophet where he places his hand on the child's head, saying like, don't worry son, it'll be okay. Right, so you see the Prophet consoling him. The next thing that is mentioned in the narration is what the wadda'a, then the Prophet made wudu. So what does making wudu have to do with the situation? So it's very likely that this was just kind of an occurrence. Right? That it was just an issue of timing. That the Prophet ﷺ was maybe about to go out for the prayer. That the aunt brought the child to the home of the Prophet ﷺ and it was time for the prayer so the Prophet ﷺ made wudu because it was time for prayer. So he just happened to, so he maybe sought permission from them that if you'll allow me I need to make wudu so that we can go to the masjid. And he said absolutely. So then the Prophet ﷺ is making wudu. Now somebody could also ask the question, well, that's kind of like awkward sitting there making wudu while people are watching you. Well, that's actually the role of the Messenger ﷺ. It's a, it's a teaching opportunity. It's a learning moment for these folks. 
to be able to watch the Prophet ﷺ do wudu. And that's why there are more than 30 authentic, there are more than 30 Sahaba who authentically narrate the procedure of wudu of the Prophet ﷺ. So that means there were, there were dozens of people who observed and watched the Prophet ﷺ making wudu. That's how we learned how to make wudu, it's from the Messenger ﷺ. Alright, that's why the procedure of the wudu, the sequence of the wudu is mutawatir. Right? It's, it's relayed by a, such a large number of people uh, and in so many different narrations that it's like a conclusive, absolute fact of the religion. Alright, it's mutawatir. And so, the Prophet ﷺ made wudu. Now he says, فَشَرِبْتُ مِنْ وَدُوِهِ Alright, this is gonna get into some linguistics, but if you can pay attention, that the word normally is called wudu, the act is called wudu, bidammil wow, with a dhamma on the wow, with the oo sound on the wow, wudu. If you look at the word here closely, it says wadu, with a fatha, bifathil wow, with a fatha on the wow, the a sound on the wow, wadu. Wudu is the act. Wadu, with the a sound on the wow, that is the water, the bucket, from, from where wudu is made. So the act is called wudu, and the actual water from where you are taking the water to make wudu is called wadu, the water source itself. Alright, because obviously they didn't have like, you know, running water or plumbing, uh, and nor was the Prophet ﷺ making wudu at a stream, but so what he would have is he would have a bucket of water in his home from where he would make wudu. And so, a couple of things now, is first and foremost, let me go ahead and explain one thing to you. The Prophet ﷺ was very particular that when wudu is made, that, and you are making wudu from let's say a bucket, that the Prophet ﷺ would take the water from there. So first of all, if there was a larger bucket, the Prophet ﷺ would put some water into a bowl, or a smaller bucket. He wouldn't pollute all the water. Not pollute in the literal sense, it's a messenger salatism, there's no pollution here. But meaning he would not use it straight from the larger source. Out of adab, out of respect, out of etiquette. It's the messenger salatism, nobody would complain if he did. Nobody would complain if he did. Right? But the Prophet taught us etiquette. Like one time they used to have, they used to have these water sacks. So made out of leather, made out of skin, they would have sacks in which they would store water and it would keep the water cool. And so the, the Prophet ﷺ saw a man drink straight from the water sack, open it up and put his mouth on the sack and drink straight from there. It's kind of like drinking from the carton or drinking straight from the jug. And the Prophet ﷺ saw the man doing it and the Prophet ﷺ reprimanded the man. He said, don't do that. Don't do that. Nobody wants to drink your backwash. Right? Don't do that. And so the Prophet ﷺ was very big on this type of etiquette. That you don't make other people uncomfortable. Right? And so the Prophet ﷺ himself was very conscientious in this regard. And so if there was a larger source of water, he would pour it into a smaller dish, and from there he would make wudu. Even from that smaller dish in which he would make wudu as to not waste the water, the Prophet ﷺ would not make wudu on top of that dish. But he would place it a little bit away or place it off to the side and he would scoop water from there and then he would make wudu. So that after he had washed his face, when the water would fall, it would not fall back in that dish. Again, even though the Prophet, and I'll be talking a little bit about this, the Prophet ﷺ was such a source of barakah and blessing, exclusively him, that the Sahaba actually would 
collect the droplets of his wudu as a source of blessing and even a remedy. But still the Prophet ﷺ was conscious of the fact that I don't want the water dripping after I'm having used it, rubbed it on my body, to drip back into the bowl so that somebody else can use it comfortably. I don't want to put somebody else in that position. Right? And so even when washing his feet, it's not like he would dunk his feet into the bowl of water. He would scoop some water up and put it on his feet and then rub. And I'm not going to get into too much detail here, but the amount of water in which the Prophet ﷺ would make wudu was the size of a cup. That the Prophet ﷺ would make wudu from basically water, the amount of a cup. With a cup full of water, the Prophet ﷺ would make wudu. Right? And it's very practical, it's very doable for a couple of reasons. That number one, it is not a requirement or a condition that water has to flow. But you can take water and then rub it and spread it all over the, the body part. So when you're washing your arm and you take water and you put it there, then you can rub. The, the objective is that the water gets everywhere. But it's not necessarily necessary that it has to flow off. And that's very problematic. And sometimes it becomes kind of like, almost like a waswasa, a waham for people. Where people become obsessive about it. And that's not a requirement of wudu at all. At all. And so the Prophet ﷺ, that's how we would make wudu. So I just wanted to clarify that. So when it's saying that, فَشَرِبْتُ min wadu'ihi, I drank from the water that was left over after he made wudu. It's talking about that bowl from where he was making wudu. So it's not necessarily saying that I drank the collection of water that had fallen from his face and his limbs after he had made wudu. No, he's saying that that bowl that he was scooping the water out of to make wudu, I drank from the water that was then remaining after he was done making wudu. Right? And again, what the Prophet ﷺ would do, and this is very important to note, is from the etiquette of wudu, before the Prophet ﷺ would put his hands into the water source, he would actually take the bowl and he would pour a little bit of water into his hands and wash his hands before putting his hands into the water. So he would actually wash his hands, pour some water into his hands and wash his hands and then he would put his hand. And so the Prophet ﷺ himself would sometimes then even drink the water that was left over in that bowl. Because he had washed his hands and they were his own hands. And so then he would drink the water himself sometimes. So as to not waste the water. Because there was just a little bit of water left over and so he would sometimes drink it himself. So he says, I drank the water that was left over after his wudu. Now there's a couple of, there's a couple of points that need to be discussed here. So based off of that fact, the Prophet ﷺ, as evidenced by the fact that he himself would drink the water that was left over as to not waste the water, it could be that the child is saying, I drank the water because I was thirsty, and that was a perfectly good, clean source of water, and so I drank that water. So it, it might not necessarily be tied to some type of you know, remedy or seeking of blessing, that I was just thirsty and that was water, so I drank it. Number two is the fact that there could have also been very well, and many of the scholars have affirmed the fact that there is an element of tabarruk here, seeking blessing from drinking that water that was used by the Prophet ﷺ, the water that had made contact with the hand of the Prophet ﷺ. And that also is something that we don't have any qualms or disagreements about because there are narrations, authentic narrations, 
such as the narration of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah that demonstrates the fact that even the Quraysh saw that when the Prophet ﷺ would make wudu and the water was dripping from his limbs, they would go and they would catch the droplets and they would spread it on their face. They would rub that water on their face. They saw it as a source of blessing. That he is the messenger of Allah ﷺ. So even if it was maybe the aunt told the child, or the Prophet ﷺ instructed the child, or the child himself knew intuitively by observing everyone else around the Prophet ﷺ to drink that water. And that could have been done for the sake of blessing and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It'd be a very good thing to do. The third point now, however, is that this idea of a tabarruk is this kind of a concept now that we can expand from here. Is it a concept that can be applied to other people? There are some opinions, there's a minority opinion that this is generally kind of an idea that can be expanded to others. The majority of scholars are of the opinion that this is not an idea that expands or extends to other individuals. And those are also my conclusions or convictions as well. Wallahu ta'ala alam, Allah knows best. I'm really not anyone to have an opinion on the issue. But nevertheless, those are at least my thoughts along with the majority of scholars, that this is not a concept that expands or extends to others. And that's rooted with an evidence. Not any type of paranoia or anything, but it's rooted with an evidence. Because there's a very interesting idea that the Sahaba obviously would seek this source, this type of blessing from the Prophet ﷺ, where they would go and catch the droplets of wudu falling from him and drink the water left over from the wudu and so on and so forth. Right? Umm Salama radiallahu ta'ala anha would sometimes use some hairs of the Prophet ﷺ that she had remaining as even like a source of remedy. Like putting it in the water and then using that water and putting it on like some rash or an ailment or something like that. So the Sahaba had this understanding and they practiced it. And it's authentically narrated that they would seek this type of blessing or remedy from the Prophet ﷺ himself. But what's very fascinating is that you do not find, if the idea could be expanded to others, then the idea would be, and the minority that does hold that opinion, states the fact that, well, see, similarly, that you seek blessing from righteous people. That basically you identify within them certain qualities or traits or features of the Prophet their righteousness, their piety, their God consciousness, their taqwa. And based off of that, then you seek that type of blessing from them. Well, what we would have definitely seen then, is that within the community of Sahaba, we obviously know for a fact that there were some Sahaba who did hold some, uh, a very high level of piety. As evidenced by the fact that the Prophet ﷺ recognized that within them. The Prophet ﷺ recognized the piety and the righteousness of Abu Bakr, of Umar, of Uthman, of Ali. The Prophet ﷺ said, Hassan and Hussein will be the leaders of the young people in paradise. Fatima will be the leaders, leader of women in paradise. The Prophet ﷺ said, Abu Ubaidah is the most honest man of my ummah. The Prophet ﷺ said that Ubayy ibn Ka'b is, is the most gifted reciter of my ummah. The Prophet ﷺ said that make dua for Ibn Abbas, that may Allah bless him with knowledge and understanding of the Qur'an. Right? So you have all these individuals about whom the Messenger ﷺ has said that they are remarkable people.
So then you would have found that other sahaba would similarly go to them to seek blessing from them. Or that the following generation of tabi'un who interacted with the sahaba would do would practice the same thing that you would find alqama drinking the leftover wudu water of Ibn Mas'ud and uh, Ikrimah doing so with Ibn Abbas and Sa'id ibn Musayyib doing the same with Abdullah ibn Umar and so on and so forth but you find don't find them doing that there's no evidence there's no quotations there's no precedent of them doing so so it kind of allows you to extrapolate the fact that the Sahaba themselves the Tabi'un those early generations understood the fact that this was min khasa'isir rasuli sallallahu alayhi wasallam. This is exclusive to the Messenger sallallahu So we're not denying something from the religion. In fact, we're confirming a virtue of the Messenger sallallahu That this is exclusive to the Prophet sallallahu Alright? So that's a little bit of an issue that comes from here. Now he says, I went and I stood behind him. So again... Why did he go and he stand behind him? Maybe it was just coincidentally, he was just standing there. Or it could have also been the fact that he knew that there was something special on the back of the Prophet ﷺ. And being a child, being curious, he wanted to see it for himself. So he says that I looked at the seal of prophethood on the back of the Prophet ﷺ. <clears throat> and he says that it was like the... Um, knot or the um, it was like the knob that is on a bedpost. So what they would do is a lot of times that even when they would have like a very simple bed, they would have these knots or these small circles, these uh, that almost look like the size of an egg. They would have these little knobs at the edge of four ends of the bed, and the purpose of that was to be able to tie right the mosquito net. They would use it to tie the mosquito net onto it, right? So it was kind of like the canopy of the bed, all right? So he says that that's what it reminded me of. The next narration, Imam Tirmidhi says, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا سَعِيدُ بْنُ يَعْقُوبَ الطَّلْقَانِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَيُّوبُ بْنُ جَابِرٍ عَنْ سِمَاكِ بْنِ حَرْبٍ عَنْ جَابِرٍ بْنِ سَمُرَى رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَلَى عَنْهُ قَالْ رَأَيْتُ الْخَاتَمَ بَيْنَ كَتِفَيْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ غُدَّةً حَمْرَاءَ مِثْلَ بَيْضَةِ الْحَمَامَةِ Jabir bin Samura رضي الله تلى عنه relates that I saw the seal between the shoulders of the Prophet and it was like a red piece of flesh. It was like a red piece of skin, flesh. And he says that it was the size or the shape more so of the egg of a pigeon, a pigeon's egg. And so one of the things that we see here, he says that it was red. And again, what he means by the redness of it, there's another narration which says that it was this color of the skin of the Prophet ﷺ. It was the color of the skin of the Prophet ﷺ. So it was kind of like this piece of flesh, but it wasn't necessarily like, when it says it was red, it was not, it's not that it was inflamed or infected in any way, but it was more so the color of his skin. The third narration, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَبُو مُسْعَبِ الْمَدِينِ 
قال حدثنا يوسف بن الماجشون عن أبيه عن عاصم بن عمر بن قتادة عن جدته روميثة قالت سمعت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ولو أشاء أن قالت ولو أشاء أن أقبل الخاتم الذي بين كتفيه من قربه لفعلت يقول رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لسعد بن معاذ يوم مات اهتز له عشر الرحمن So in this particular narration Umar bin uh, Asim bin Umar bin Qatada relates from his grandmother whose name was Rumaytha Rumaytha she was a sahabiya she was a woman at the time of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam so he's relating this from his grandmother Rumaytha radiyallahu ta'ala anha was an elderly woman she was an older woman so again uh, what you realize about this here is again you see the interaction of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam with the community that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam wasn't some recluse or somebody who was completely cut off from the people um and separated from the people but the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was very welcome very was very welcoming very open right he was very welcoming that this woman when she wants in the previous narration when she wants to bring her nephew she can come and visit the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam this elderly woman wants to come and sit with the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and she's able to come and sit with the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and she's sitting so close that she says now I'll translate rumaitha says that i heard the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and when i heard him saying what he, what he said i was sitting so close to him that if i wanted to lean forward and kiss the seal of prophethood on the back of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam i would have been able to do so and he i heard him saying in regards to sad bin muadh on the day that he passed away that he died that the throne the arsh of ar-rahman the throne of allah the throne of the most merciful it shook for him it shook because of sad now i'll go ahead and explain so this woman romaitha is sitting so close this elderly woman is sitting so close to the prophet sallallahu that she says i could have leaned forward and kissed the seal of prophet on his back so again you see the prophet sallallahu alaihi was very accessible Again this is not bring up some issue about gender interaction and all these different things Rumaitha it is documented fact she was a very elderly woman and the rules differ very much for interacting with very elderly people Ajuzat right with elderly people the rules are different and so being a very elderly woman like a grandmother to everyone in the community including even the prophet sallallahu alaihi himself being older in age but she was very very elderly maybe something in the range of 80 90 something years old so being very elderly the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam treated her like a mother he treated her like a mother and she wanted to come and sit close to him and talk and now again imagine an elderly person right you have to kind of look after them an elderly person probably wanted to talk a lot to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is sitting there with her very close to her probably serves her something asks her if she's okay she talks and talks and talks and he sits and he listens to her you see the character of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam right he was a man of the people now this little interjection the reason why the narration seems kind of strange even in the translation what she's saying is i heard the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam say about sa'd bin muadh on the day that he died that the throne of the most merciful the throne of allah shook because of sa'd and then she's interjecting that by the way 
When I heard him say this, I was sitting so close that if I wanted to kiss the seal of prophethood on his back, I would have been able to. This is what's called in the science of hadith as idraj. This is mudraj, minar rawi, minar sahabi. Right? So this is an interjection. This is an interjection from the narrator. Alright? So now to so I now that I've explained the dynamic here and how it te- teaches you something about the character of the Prophet, what is the story behind the Arsh of Rahman say, shaking for Sa'ad bin Mu'adh? Sa'ad bin Mu'adh radiallahu ta'ala, and I'll give you a very brief bio of him. Sa'ad bin Mu'adh radiallahu ta'ala anhu was a leader of the tribe of Khazraj in the city of Yathrib, which would become Medina. He accepted Islam at the hands of Musa bin Umair, who was sent by the Prophet ﷺ, after about 12, 13 people in Medina had accepted Islam, they insisted that the Prophet ﷺ, they had come to Mecca and become Muslim. They insisted that the Prophet ﷺ sent a preacher and a teacher back with them. We're going to be talking about this in the Sirah class. But nevertheless, Musa bin Umair was a leader that was sent. Sa'ad bin Mu'ad was a leader of his people, initially was not sure what to make of this new religion and this preacher, and so came to meet with Musa bin Umair, and when listening to the Qur'an being recited, he accepted Islam. But Sa'ad bin Mu'ad was such a respected man, and was such a man of conviction, was a confident man. He was young actually, right? When he became Muslim, he was in his early 30s. And so in that particular culture, it is actually very noteworthy, even shocking, that somebody in their early 30s would command so much respect amongst his people that when he became Muslim, on that very same day, his family, within the tribe of Khazraj, his family was called Banu Abdul Ashhal. They were the family of Banu Abdul Ashhal, the sons of Abdul Ashhal. That he went, gathered the whole family together, the whole extended family together, Banu Abdul Ashhal, and he said that speaking to all of you is forbidden upon me. Like I've taken an oath not to interact with any of you until you accept Islam. Because I know what's the truth. And I want what's good for you. And I believe that this is what's good. And then he shared the message with them. And the whole extended family, Banu Abdullah accepted Islam on the spot. They all became Muslim right there and there. And this was the first major family of Medina to become Muslim. And it was because of Sa'ad bin Mu'adh. Sa'ad bin Mu'adh was also the companion of the Prophet ﷺ, who stood up and voiced his support for him and his people's support for him in the Battle of Badr. He rallied the people of Medina to march out with the Prophet ﷺ in the Battle of Badr. So time and time again, he is again one of the people who rallied the community to fight by the side of the Prophet ﷺ, excuse me, in the battle of Uhud. So time and time again, he was somebody who the Prophet ﷺ could count on. And so in the battle of the trench, the battle of Khandaq, he again was there supporting the Prophet ﷺ along with his whole family, his tribe, his people. And unfortunately, he was hit with an arrow, he was struck with a stray arrow from the other side of the trench, from the enemy side. Somebody launched some arrows and one of them came and struck him. One narration says in his neck. It struck him in his neck in a place where there was a major uh, artery. And he basically 
would not stop bleeding and he bled out from that injury. And the Prophet ﷺ personally was checking on him. He had a tent put for him within the masjid. And the Prophet ﷺ was checking on him and they, he was bleeding so profusely that the blood was seeping out from under the tent into the masjid until he eventually passed away due to this injury. And the Prophet ﷺ mourned his loss. The Prophet ﷺ himself personally you know, arranged for his burial. And he was very, very distraught at the loss of Sa'd bin Mu'adh. And there's a very interesting, um, there's a couple of interesting incidents that when his janazah was there and the Prophet ﷺ entered the room, the Prophet ﷺ was seen kind of walking on his, the balls of his feet, like on his tiptoes. The Prophet ﷺ was seen walking on his toes. And when they asked him, لِمَاذَا تَفْعَلْ هَكَذَا يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ why are you doing this, O Messenger of Allah? The Prophet of Allah ﷺ responded by saying that there are so many angels in the room that there's no place for me to put my feet. In some narrations of Aisha anha and other Sahaba, it mentions that 70,000 angels have come down to attend the janazah of Sa'd bin Mu'adh. And the number 70,000 a lot of times would be used to just mean that an inordinate amount of angels have come. So another narration, the Prophet ﷺ says, مَا بَقِي عَلَى وَجْهِ الْأَرْضِ مَكَانٌ There is no place on the face of this earth that is not present, that is not covered by angels present for the janazah of Sa'ad bin Mu'adh to carry his soul back to the heavens. The Prophet of Allah ﷺ, when they lifted the body of Sa'ad bin Mu'adh, some of the munafiqun, some of the hypocrites were there, and they didn't like Sa'ad bin Mu'adh, because he used to call them out when they would make these secret plans and discussions and Sa'ad bin Mu'adh would find out about it. Because he had, of course, he had the inside trap. He was a leader of his people. And he would hear about it, he would call them out and he would oppose them. So they didn't like him. So when they lifted the janazah, some of them said, some of them commented by saying that uh, the janazah of Sa'ad bin Mu'adh is not very heavy. The janazah of Sa'ad bin Mu'adh is not very heavy. They said, مَا أَخَفَّ جَنَازَتُهُ مَا أَخَفَّ جَنَازَتَهُ Look how light his body is. And what that meant was in their culture, what that meant was that was an insult, insult towards a person. That look, he's like a child. He's not even a man. It doesn't feel like you're carrying a man. So it was like an insult that they used to use. And the Prophet ﷺ retorted, he responded immediately. Normally the Prophet ﷺ would ignore these people. But he was so, like he loved Sa'ad bin Mu'adh so much. And he was so pained by his loss, he responded right away and he said, His janazah seems light because people, you're not carrying his janazah, the angels are carrying the janazah of Sa'ad bin Mu'adh. And that's when the Prophet ﷺ commented and he said, Rahman. The throne of Allah has shaken for Sa'ad, out of, out of honor for Sa'ad. And another narration specifically, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ says, Arshu Farhan Ta'ala Sa'dan. That the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has shaken out of celebration. 
that today Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will meet his beloved slave Sa'ad. Alright, so that was... And again, what is the significance? There's, uh, I don't want to get into too much detail here. But what's the significance? What does it mean for the throne to shake? What does that signify? What is the significance of that? Then what we know about the Arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is, the, is that it is one of the greatest of Allah's creations. It is the, some mentioned that it's the greatest of Allah's creation. There's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he says, all of the heavens and the earth, when placed before the kursi, the footstool of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is like placing a ring inside of an, uh, in, in an open field. You would not even be able to see a ring in an open field. That's what the heavens and the earth look like in front of the footstool of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the arsh, the throne of Allah, the footstool looks like a ring inside of a field when placed before the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The arsh of Allah. Alright, so it is the greatest of Allah's creation. And it is the height of Allah's creation. And so... It shaking is, signi- is signifying the fact that it is basically said to do so out of honor for someone and respect for someone. Alright? So that's what it makes reference to. But the uh, relevant thing here is the reason why Imam Tirmidhi brings this narration is to talk about the fact that the uh, elderly woman, Rumaytha, she makes reference to the seal of prophethood on the back of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Hadith number four. Imam Tirmidhi says, "Qala haddathana Ahmad ibn Abdat al-Dabbi wa Ali ibn Hujrin wa ghayru wahidin. Qalu haddathana Isa ibn Yunus an Umar ibn Abdullah maula Ghufra. Qala haddathani Ibrahim ibn Muhammadin min waladi Ali ibn Abi Talib." رضي الله تعالى عنه قال كان علي رضي الله عنه إذا وصف رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فذكر الحديث بطوله وقال بين كتفيه خاتم النبوة وهو خاتم النبيين Alright um, Ali رضي الله تعالى عنه one of the um, grandsons of Ali رضي الله تعالى عنه one of the grandsons of Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Ibrahim ibn Muhammad ibn Ali. One of the grandsons of Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu, this is not a grandson from Fatima. This is a son, Muhammad, where his name was Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya. And so this was a son of Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu from another woman that he married after the passing of Fatima radiallahu ta'ala anha. But nevertheless, this is a grandson of Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He says, whenever Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu, kana Ali, whenever Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu would describe the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and then he mentions a hadith in its entirety, similar to the hadith that we've seen from Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu in the previous chapter. And he would say in that hadith, that between his shoulders was the seal of prophethood, and he sallallahu alayhi wasallam, was the seal of all the prophets. He sallallahu alayhi wasallam was the finality of all the prophets. And so again, 
Um, there's no really um, detail here that's provided, but nevertheless, he mentions the fact that this was a part of the physical description that Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu used to provide for the Prophet and of course, Ali radiallahu anhu was one of the people who was the most intimately familiar with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Hadith number five. قال حدثنا محمد بن بشار قال حدثنا أبو عاصم قال حدثنا عزرة بن ثابت قال حدثني علباء بن أحمر اليشكري قال حدثني أبو زيد عمرو بن أخطب الأنصاري قال لي, قال قال لي رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يا أبا زيد أدن مني فامسح ظهري فمسحت ظهره فوقعت أصابعي على على الخاتم قلت وما الخاتم قال شعارات مجتمعات So in this particular narration hadith number 5 Alba narrates from Abu Zaid whose name was Amr ibn Akhtab and he was a Medinan Sahabi, he was an Ansari. He says that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said to me, Oh Abu Zaid, come close. Udun minni, come here. And he said, feel on my back. Here, check out my back right here. And so I placed my hand and felt his back and my fingers, they fell on the seal of prophethood. The narrator, Alba, he says, I asked him, what was it like? What was it like? And he said that they were, there was some hair gathered around it. There was some hair around it. So he provides a, an extra description. Right? And what that extra description that he's providing is that not that the seal of prophethood itself was just like a bunch of hair. He's saying that it was there I felt it with my fingers, but what I found interesting, and maybe he had heard descriptions of it from other sahaba as well, but he says what I found fascinating was that there was some hair around it as well. All right? Now, a couple of things that I wanted to mention here about Abu Zaid, this particular sahabi that's very fascinating. First and foremost, Abu Zaid al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala anhu is a younger sahabi. He's another younger Sahabi. And so even though he's young, the fact that the Prophet of Allah refers to him as Abu Zaid with a kunya, even though his name was Amr, it shows that the, it shows the character of the Prophet again. That the Prophet would extend respect to people. He would speak to people respectfully. That even though he was younger than the Prophet he still refers to him as Abu Zaid. With a respectful title, his kunya, to show respect to him, and so that's how considerate the Prophet was. Number one, number two, is the fact that the Prophet is telling him, "Check this out." So again, you see the interaction of the Prophet with his companions, with the Sahaba, that he interacted with them in a very friendly manner, in a very brotherly fashion, right? He tells him here, hey, hey, check this out. Here, check this out. Right? And he says that I, I put my hand on his back and I felt it. The seal of prophethood. And, I, and imagine what a special experience that was for him that he relates this. So cool. 
He let me check out the seal of prophethood with myself. He let me check it out. Right? Even though I wasn't like some family member or something, he let me check it out. So again, you see the, the, the way the Prophet would interact with the people. There's another more extended narration in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad that in this experience, that when the Prophet said, Udru minni, the Prophet then basically put his hand on his head and also then the Prophet kind of stroked his beard like this, which was a way to show kind of love and endearment. All right, in that particular culture, it was a way to show like respect or to show endearment to someone that he placed his hand on his head, of course, because he was a lot younger than him. Like as a father figure, he placed his hand on his head. And then the Prophet ﷺ kind of stroked his beard. He said, look, mashallah. You know, so like a way of saying like, look, you're a man now, right? But it was a, it was a way of showing love and endearment in that particular culture. Be very conscious of the fact that it was acceptable in that culture. Do not go around doing that to other people. Touch my beard, I will hurt you. All right? So, but nevertheless, of course, the Prophet ﷺ is showing it as a sign of love. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, Allahumma jamilhu wa adim jamalahu. Allahumma jamilhu wa adim jamalahu. Allah, oh Allah, make him beautiful. And then maintain his beauty for him. The fascinating thing is that Amr. Amr bin al-Akhtab, he was, Amr bin Akhtab, Abu Zaid, he was a younger Sahabi. He was a younger Sahabi. And he again lived for a very long time. It said that he lived till the age of about a hundred. Some narrations mention that he passed away at the age of 96. 96. He lived till he was 96 years old. Very old. And some also historical accounts mention that he was the last living Sahabi in the city of Medina. Because Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu had moved to Mecca. And some of the other Sahaba who lived also lived in Kufa and Mecca, some other areas. But he was the last living Sahabi in Medina. And the people re relate about him that even at the age of 96, he had no wrinkles on his face. He had no wrinkles on his face. He had black hair. His beard was still black. He just had a little bit of white hair. Maybe just a little bit right here. Alright? But other than that, mostly his head was still black hair, dark hair. And his beard was still dark as well. And he had no wrinkles on his face. Very youthful looking. 96 years old. Not only that, but they also relate about him. That at 96... He was still physically very active. He was still physically very active. He used to walk around. He would do his own household chores. He would maintain all of his own things. He, would, he was very physically active. That the Prophet ﷺ making dua for him had that effect. And there's a... In the explanation of this, some of the scholars... They mentioned something very beautiful, very fascinating. That the Prophet of Allah there's another hadith where he says, Allahu imra'an. May God keep youthful. May God keep youthful. It's like a dua. May God keep youthful a person, Sami'a maqalati, who hears some of my words. 
the ahadith. Fawa'aha. Then he memorizes it. Fa'addaha kama sami'aha. And then he relates it as he heard it. That this is exactly why Sufyan ibn Uyayna says, مَا مِنْ أَحَدٍ يَطْلُبُ الْحَدِيثَ إِلَّا وَفِي وَجْهِهِ نَظْرَةٌ Sufyan ibn Uyayna, he says, this is why Khatib al-Baghdadi mentions this quote of Sufyan ibn Uyayna. He says that Sufyan ibn Uyayna used to say that this is why we've noticed that anyone who was a student of hadith was always very youthful looking. Was always very youthful looking. Because of the dua of the Prophet ﷺ. Alright? Hadith number five. Or excuse me, hadith number six. Imam Tirmidhi relates قال حدثنا أبو عمار الحسين بن حريث الخزاعي قال حدثنا علي بن حسين بن واقد قال حدثني أبي قال حدثني عبد الله بن بريدة قال سمعت أبي بريدة يقول جاء سلمان الفارسي رضي الله تعالى عنه إلى رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم حين قدم المدينة بمائدة عليها رطب فوضعها بين يدي رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فقال يا سلمان ما هذا فقال صدقة عليك وعلى أصحابك فقال ارفعها فإنا لا نأكل الصدقة قال فرفعها فجاء الغد بمثله فوضعه بين يدي رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فقال ما هذا يا سلمان قال هدية لك فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لأصحابه أبسطوا ثم نظر إلى الخاتم على ظهر رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فآمن به وكان لليهود وكان لليهود فاشتراه رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم بكذا وكذا درهما على أن يغرس لهم نخلا فيعمل سلمان فيه حتى تطعم فغرس رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم النخلة إلا نخلة واحدة غرسها عمر فحملت النخل من عامها ولم تحمل نخلة فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ما شأن هذه النخلة فقال عمر يا رسول الله أنا غرستها فنزعها رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فغرسها فحملت من عامها So Abu Burayda رضي الله تعالى عنه relates that Salman al-Farisi, I'm just going to translate this and then I'll explain. Salman al-Farisi came to the Messenger ﷺ when the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina with a offering, with a basket or with an offering of dates. He placed it in front of the Messenger ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ said, Oh Salman, what is this? He responded that this is charity for you and your companions. The Prophet ﷺ said, take it away because we cannot take from charity. So he took it away. The following day or later on, he came 
with a similar offering, a basket of dates. And he placed it before the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ said, What is this, O Salman? He responded that this is a gift for you. So the Prophet ﷺ said to his companions, He said, Share this with everyone. Ubsutu, share this. Help yourselves. Then, the, then he went to go look at the seal of prophethood on the back of the Messenger ﷺ. And when he saw it, he accepted Islam and believed in the Prophet ﷺ. He And Salman used to belong to a Jewish man. He was a slave uh, and the property of a Jewish man. The Prophet ﷺ arranged for the purchase, the release of Salman in exchange for certain terms. And some of those terms were the fact that a certain amount of trees would be planted, date palms would be planted. And so Salman would have to care for them until they basically became fruitful. So the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he placed the trees with his own hands into the ground. All except for one, which Umar who had put that particular tree into the ground with his hands. All of the trees gave fruit that very same year. Except for the one that Umar had placed. And the Prophet ﷺ said, what's wrong with this tree? Why is it not giving fruit? And so Umar said, oh Messenger of Allah, because I put it in the ground. So the Prophet ﷺ took it back out of the ground and then put it back in the ground with his own hands and it gave fruit immediately. So now I'd like to go ahead and explain this particular narration. It's part of a lengthy narration which we're going to again talk about in the Sira class itself. And there's uh, one particular recording on the podcast that is dedicated to just this particular story. Nevertheless, uh, I'll summarize it to some degree. Salman al-Farisi radiallahu ta'ala anhu is a very fascinating person, a very fascinating individual. When the Prophet there's a weaker narration that when... One time when the Prophet ﷺ recited the ayah, وَإِن تَتَوَلَّوْ يَسْتَبْدِلْ قَوْمًا غَيْرَكُمْ ثُمَّ لَا يَكُونُوا أَمْثَالَكُمْ That if they turn their backs on the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring a people other than them, and then they will not be like them. That the Sahaba asked, what does that mean, O, o Messenger of Allah? And Salman was sitting next to the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ patted him on the back, and he said, people like this, People like this. And then the Prophet ﷺ said that even if the religion, if guidance would have been found on another planet, لَنَالَهُ alu Salman. Salman and the people of Salman or people like Salman would go to another planet if they had to to find the religion, to find guidance. And he was complimenting the resilience, the perseverance, the persistence of Salman. And so the story of Salman, a lengthier story, basically he tells his own story that he grew up in Persia. He was the king, uh, excuse me, he was the son of a leader of a town, kind of like the son of a nobleman in Persia. He says, I was an only child. My son, my, my father was very protective over me. He raised me what we would call like in a glass box. He wouldn't let me leave the house. He wouldn't let me do anything. And so... 
All I would basically do is live in the house, you know, take care of the books for my father for his business. He, he ran a business, so I would do the books for my father. And then I would also, because my father was the leader of the people, so our temple where we would worship a fire, there were Zoroastrians, Majusi, that it was basically in our, it was attached to our home, the temple. And so I used to take care of the fire. Until some travelers who were Christian, there, um, they, basically there was a monk who had come and set up a little monastery and was trying to you know, preach Christianity to our people. But our people really weren't interested in him. So one day my father, he sent me out on some errands. But he was very nervous. He's like, look, I have no choice. I need some help. I need you to go. But listen, you go there and you come straight back. I'll be waiting for you here. All right, don't, don't worry me, don't bother me, don't trouble me, don't disappoint me. And so he says that I was going and on the way I passed by the monastery. And there were people there. And the reason why there were people there, there were some travelers from Asham, where many folks were Christian, and they were passing through there and so they were staying with the monk. He was, he was taking care of them. And so they were staying, staying there and I saw a bunch of people there and they were reading something and worshiping and praying. And I was very fascinated. And so I went in to kind of watch and I stood at the back and watched them for a little while. And they noticed me and they called me in and they were very hospitable and they gave me food and snacks and they asked me to come and pray with them and I started praying with them. And I was very fascinated by this. It was very intriguing. And it made a lot of sense. And he said, I, I came to the realization what these people are doing makes so much more sense than what we do. What they believe makes so much more sense than what we believe. So I became convinced. I spent hours there until I realized it was evening time. And I said, oh my goodness. Right? My father's probably freaking out. So I ran home. Lo and behold, my dad was waiting outside and he was just furious. Where were you? You're never leaving the house ever again. Right? So on and so forth. And so I sat down with him and I said, you know, I went to the monastery, visited the monk. He had these visitors. They were praying. They were reading. Oh my goodness, it was amazing. And my father was very upset. He said, absolutely not. All that's garbage. You're never leaving the house ever again. And he locked me in the house. Right? He locked me up when he left the next day. He said, obviously, I grew up here. I lived in this house. I, kn I knew how to get out if I needed to get out. So what I did was I had one of my friends send a message to those travelers telling them that when you leave, don't leave without me. Don't leave without me. Let me know. And so they sent the word to me that we're leaving tonight. So I packed up my stuff. I snuck out of the house. He was a teenager. I was a man at this point. My father was locking me up for no reason. And so I left. Never looked back ever again. I left. And I traveled with these people until I went back to where they lived. And I said, I'd like to learn more about the religion. That's all I'm interested in. And they said, we have this priest in our area. You should go and you should stay with him, study with him, become his understudy, his student, learn from him. So I said, I did. And I regretted it. Because this guy was a crook. He was a thief. He used to collect donations from people. And then he would keep them all for himself. And he would stash them. And I became so frustrated. He was so corrupt. He was just obsessed with money. 
that I became so frustrated with him, I told somebody that, you know, this guy is just basically a crook. He keeps all of your money. And they came in and they basically, some narrations say that they went as far, that they, they killed him. They hung him. And so, but nobody bothered me because I wasn't a part of this. I had nothing to do with this. I told them where the stash was buried. But now I was kind of left in this dilemma. I know I had found something that made sense to me. But now I had this experience. So someone told me, so he says then that they brought another monk, another priest in his place. And he said, that man was remarkable. He was what I was looking for in a teacher. Remarkable. Honest, trustworthy, pious, righteous, knowledgeable, everything I was looking for. So I learned from him and I studied with him and I learned a lot. Until he was an elderly man and he was dying, so I asked him, what should I do? And he said, go to such and such priest. You can trust him. He's one of us, one of the old guard. And so I said, I went with him and I studied with him. And I spent some time with him. When he was about to die, then he sent me to a third guy. And again, same thing. He said, he's one of the old timers. He's somebody you can trust. So I went and I studied with him and spent some time with him until he was about to die. So I said, what do I do now? And he's like, there's no, many, no more priests to go to. And he gave me some scripture and he said, look. Now it's time for that prophet to come. So he said, I don't know, I don't have in my scripture what I have. I don't have any information about his early life. But I do have information about his later life. That I can tell you, I don't know exactly, I don't know a lot of details about where he'll be from, but I can tell you where he'll end up. And he said there's this town, and it's a farming town, and they grow date, dates over there, the plentiful date palms, and he described it, and there's some mountains on the outskirts of it, Uhud, and you know, he described it. So he said basically, go to Arabia and try to find a town that fits this, this description. So he said, I set out. And I had a little bit of money saved up and I tried to hitch a ride. But unfortunately, the people that I caught a ride with were terrible people. So what they did was, I was a Persian, so I was a foreigner and made me a little exotic. And at the same time, they knew that I, I wouldn't have any family or a tribe or any backup or support here. Nobody had my back. I was by myself, a Persian Christian monk, right? Traveling in the desert by himself. So basically, I went to sleep at night. I woke up in the next morning and I was in chains. They had tied me up overnight. They'd st- taken all my stuff and they dragged me with them the rest of the way and dropped me off in a marketplace, sold me off to a slave trader as a slave. Look, we found a really nice exotic slave for you. And they sold me in the marketplace as a slave. He said that I was purchased by a man who gifted me to his cousin. And he said that when he gifted me to his cousin, And his cousin took me to his orchard, his property, where he grew dates. He said, I went and I started looking around the city as he was taking me there, the town, and everything matched. I had ended up in that place, Medina. And I was like, yes. Right? It's all worth it. Being sold into slavery. So much tragedy. But it's all worth it. I ended up here. I got here. God brought me here. And he says, so 
I, I was there for a, a few years until one day I was up in the tree and I was basically, he had me kind of maintaining the trees. And he says that I, I heard my, the, the guy who owned me, the, the Jewish man, he was sitting down on, in the garden and one of his cousins or family members came to meet him and he said that, you know, we got problems. So what? He said, have you heard about this new religion? All these, these Aus and Khazraj, these Arabs, they've been accepting some new religion. He said, yeah. He said, well, their prophet, he's arrived. He's outside of Medina in, a, in the city called Quba, the town called Quba. And he's arrived here. He's here now. He said, it's not good for us and our political status here. And he said, when I heard that, I almost fell out of the tree. I climbed down quickly and I, and I went up to the man and said, well, well, what'd you say, what'd you say? And he said, my owner slapped me across the face. Slave, go do your work. It's none of your business. This doesn't concern you. So he said, I gathered some dates together. I'm a slave. I didn't own anything. I gathered whatever rations were given to me. I saved them aside, gathered some dates together, kind of put together a little bit of like a tray or a basket, like a little gift basket. And I went to Quba. And he said that my last teacher in the scripture had shown me that there will be three signs. There will be three things, three tests. Oh, three ways that you can confirm that he's a prophet. Number one, he himself does not consume charity. He does not eat charity. But if you give him charity, if you gift him charity, he will pass it on to his People who are worthy of it, but him and his family, they don't take any charity. Number two, if you give him a gift, he will take some and you'll share it with others. That's his sunnah. And number three, he has a seal of prophethood on his back. So he said, I took the dates and that's where you see in this narration, I presented it before him. I introduced myself, my name is Salman, such and such. And so then I said, I brought something. And he said, so what is this? And he said, Sadaqah. Sadaqatun alayk wa ala ashabik. Here's some charity for you and your followers. And in the lengthier narration, he says, because I see that some of your people have fallen on hard times. Imagine a slave saying that. Right? <laughs> and it, no, it tells you the condition of the Sahaba. After the hijrah, the migration, they were dehydrated. They had been tra traveling through the desert for weeks. You know, without food, without water, without transportation. Many of them when they arrived, they were sick, they were ill, dehydrated, malnourished. So he says, your people have fallen on hard times. Here, please. And then when the Prophet ﷺ says, please take it from here, meaning go give it to them. He said that, that we meaning the family of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi prophets and the families of prophets, we do not take from charity. And so the reason why I use this, some people ask that, some of the scholars discuss that, why did he use the word, why did he say, la akulu sadaqa? I don't need charity. Why did he say that we? Either he's meaning we as prophets, or maybe because maybe some of his family members were sitting with him as well, and he means we as the family of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi we don't take from charity. So give it to them. Then he says, I came back. And in a lengthier narration, he actually clarifies that in order for me to scrounge up enough dates again, it took me like a week or so. So by that time, the Prophet ﷺ had now made it to Medina. 
He had settled in Medina. So I went to go visit him there. And then I put it down again. And he said, Ya Salman Mahada, what is this? And I said, this is a gift. And then the Prophet ﷺ called the people. He took one and he called the people. And he said, come on, dig in. And then he says that I went in the lengthier narrations. He says that I went around and I sat down at a place where I could see his back. Where I wasn't too close to be conspicuous or weird. Right? But close enough to where I could see. But the thing was he was wearing a shawl. Like his upper garments. The Prophet ﷺ a lot of times will read about the garments of the Prophet and the clothes. That one the, one of the types of clothing he would wear is that he would have a shawl wrapped around his upper body. So he had the shawl on. So I couldn't see his back. And I just kept kind of sitting there staring, kind of peeking, peering, hoping some way, somehow I'd be able to see the seal of Prophet on his back. And after a while, the Prophet of Allah kind of sensed me you know, that there's somebody being weird, right? And so the Prophet ﷺ realized it was me, and knowing that I had brought him charity, and called it very clearly charity, sadaqah, and then I brought him a gift and said, hadiyah. And now I just happened to be sitting behind him, staring at his back. The Prophet ﷺ said, I know what you're looking for. And he kind of lowered his shawl, kind of like opened his shirt, and showed me, on his back, and I saw the seal of prophethood. And the extended narration says that Salman he says, when I saw the seal of prophethood on the back of the Prophet I ran forward and I hugged the Prophet from behind and I kissed his back. And I started to cry, and I said that I've been looking for you my whole life. That truth that I've been searching for my whole life, I finally found it. And that's how he became Muslim. But he was a slave. So he says, Badr came and went. Uhud came and went. Not only I, was, I couldn't go and pray with the Prophet ﷺ. I wasn't able to spend time. Imagine Salman. This man that traveled around everywhere. Traveled the east. Right? Searching for a truth. Was sold into slavery in his pursuit of the truth. And now he lives literally in the city of the Prophet ﷺ and he can't go and sit with him and learn from him. It was torture. But he was a slave. And his slave owner was a wretched man. Brutal. Very demanding. Very oppressive. So he said, I, I couldn't learn. I couldn't pray with him. I didn't get to go to Badr. I didn't get to go to Uhud. I was miserable. I would sneak out here and there to try to come and spend time with the Prophet ﷺ. So he says that one time I came to the Prophet ﷺ and I was so distraught and he said, what's wrong Salman? And he said, look, I can't. I've known you for, for five years now. And I can't benefit from you. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Katibiya Salman, why don't you go and negotiate a contract with your owner Look, I know he's a terrible guy, but at the end of the day, he's greedy. Money's his vice. So go and tell him you'll pay him. There was a contract. The Quran talks about it as well. Mukataba, where a slave is allowed to earn his freedom. So why don't you earn your freedom? So he said that, I went and I told the slave owner, I'd like to purchase my freedom. Mukataba. Katibni. And he said he, he gave the most ridiculous price. He said that, look, I have this plot of land that can fit about 300 date palms. 
you need to plant 300 date palms for me there. Now understand, one date palm, a tree that grows dates, in that place is basically what? In a city, and first of all in Arabia itself, where dates are the standard form of food, in a city that is a farming town, and their primary source of business and income and livelihood is the growing and the selling of dates, a date palm tree is what? It's a business asset. It's a business asset. For a car salesman, it's a car. It's a brand new vehicle. It's 2015. All right? For somebody who runs a factory, it's like machinery. It's equipment. It's not just merchandise. The dates are merchandise. The date palm itself is the machine that produces the merchandise. So that costs $100,000. That's very expensive stuff. He said, I need 300 date palm trees. Where do you get them? That's not my problem. But you need to get 300 date palms. You need to plant them there. And if they take root and they're fruitful, then that'll be the price. Oh, and the narration says, and, he, and before I left, before I could leave, before I could agree to the contract, he said, oh, one other thing. I need 40 ounces of gold, like 40 grams of gold. So go now, figure it out. So he says, the next time I saw the Prophet Wasallam, I was very embarrassed. Like I was quiet. I was kind of almost dodging him. And he saw me and he said, what happened? Ya Salman. What happened? And so he said, he said, I was very hesitant. But I told the Prophet Wasallam that, yeah, he agreed to the contract, but the problem is that he wants 300 date palms. And I didn't even tell him about the gold. How do you tell somebody that? <laughs> right? And so I just said, you know, just the 300 date palms. The Prophet said, okay, no problem. They prayed Salah. After Salah, the Prophet stood up and he said, Help your brother. Help your brother. And he said, people started standing up and making their pledges. I'll give 10 trees, I'll give 5 trees, I'll give 2 trees, I'll give 1 tree. People are giving away their own date pumps. Until somebody tallied them all up and we came to 300. The Prophet said, okay, everybody bring them out to the property, the land, tomorrow. Bring them out there, start digging the holes in which we'll plant the trees, but then don't do anything else. Wait for me to get there. Now there's two things. Number one, of course, the Prophet ﷺ made everybody contribute and everyone generously contributed. Secondly, the Prophet ﷺ did not create the attitude in Medina where you can write a check and call it a day. Whoever donated the number of trees, that person had to go home, dig up those trees, bring them over the next day, dig the holes for those trees. Had to put in the physical work and labor as well. You don't just write a check and mail it in. No, no, no. You have to come and work. Community. This is how a sense of community is developed. Right? And also, if anybody's ever been in a position to donate, understand one thing, that when you donate and then you actually go and work and serve and participate and volunteer, it humanizes the people that you are donating to. They're no longer just a statistic. They're not just an item on your spreadsheet, on your monthly expenses. It changes the dynamic. So everybody pitched in and helped. Someone so the messenger. Can you imagine the Prophet ﷺ walking out there 
Right? At this point in time, the Prophet is in his mid-50s. He walks out there, rolls up his sleeves, says, gets position, he says, all right, bring me the first tree. And now dirt, puts it into the ground, scoops the dirt in around it, packs in the dirt, and moves on to the next one. Imagine crouching down his back, getting dirt all over his arms and his hands on his clothes. This is Muhammad Rasulullah This is the greatest man that ever lived. This is a man who receives divine revelation. And this is his humility and his service, his khidmah. For a slave. To help a foreigner. Foreigner. Right? Foreign slave. Purchases freedom. Because those things, that, that is not what the Prophet ﷺ saw. The Prophet ﷺ saw a human being. He saw a believer. He saw a man of devotion and dedication. Right? So... They plant all the trees, and the very interesting thing this narration mentions, also the other one does as well, that basically the Prophet planted all the trees, and they gave fruit that very same year. That was not the norm. Normally when you planted them, it would take like at least a year of them taking root, and then they would give fruits. But they gave fruit that same year, so that Salman would be able to earn his freedom sooner rather than later. And why he needed to earn his freedom sooner, I'll tell you in just a minute. But all except one tree. One narration says Umar, one says Salman. Possibly they did it together. That one tree, maybe the Prophet overlooked one tree or whatever it was. That one tree they went ahead and put into the ground. And all except for that one tree did not give fruit. And when the Prophet came back to check it to kind of review the work, he saw that this one wasn't giving fruit and he said, what's wrong with this one? And so Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu said that I planted that one. <laughs> and the Prophet sallallahu said, okay. But that's why I told you not to. And the Prophet sallallahu took it out of the ground. And then put it back in with his own blessed hands and it gave fruit right away. But the story of Salman isn't over. So now they go back to the masjid, they kind of, you know, they're all kind of celebrating. Yay, mashallah, we did it. And Salman's kind of got this look on his face. He's not happy. He's not celebrating. And the Prophet said, what's wrong, Salman? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, how, how, how do you say, after somebody's done all of this for you, how do you say, I need like a big chunk of gold? How do you say that to somebody? So he said he was very embarrassed. And the Prophet said, speak, tell me. He said he's asked for arba'ina awqiyah min dhahab. 40 grams of gold. The Prophet said, okay, no problem. He said the Prophet reached over. He had, been, he had just received a gift. And the gift was still wrapped up. Like it was just, it looked like a big block or a chunk. Like it was a package. And it was wrapped up inside of some cloth. Right? And it was just wrapped up inside of there. Like he hadn't even opened it up and looked at what it was. And he just reached back and he grabbed that gift and he handed it to me and he goes, here, here you go, take it to him. I didn't even know what was inside of it or how much it was or whatever it was. I wasn't about to argue. I was just rolling at this point. So I just went and I met the owner and he said, I told him all your trees have been planted. And he's like, and the gold? And he said, here you go, you jerk, right? And so... I, get, I put the gold, the, just the package down in front of him. 
He unwraps it and he said, I'm sitting there looking at it. It's a big old chunk of gold, solid gold. And that wasn't good enough for him either. So he brought out his scale. He's like, I to check. You know, I'm an honest man, right? <laughs> so, so I have to check. I'm just extorting you, but I'm an honest man. So he said that I, I, I have to check. So he said, Salman says, Wallahi. I swear by Allah, I swear to God. When he measured it, it came out to be exactly 40. It was exactly 40 on the dot. Not one gram less, not one gram more. 40 exactly. And he said, then I became free. I was free. I was a free man. And I told you, again, Salman's story, of course, goes on even further. But why was it important that Salman be freed sooner rather than later? So that Salman could participate in the next battle that happened that very same year, which was the Battle of the Trench, the Battle of Khandaq, that winter. And what happened in the Battle of the Trench? When Medina was going to be attacked by an allied forces, um, by the army, what happened at that time? The Prophet ﷺ conducted, you know, shura. He consulted with everyone that what should we do? How will we protect Medina in this situation? And nobody really had any idea. And Salman anhu was the one who gave the suggestion at that time that what we should do, it's plugged into the law. You see how to get it out? No, 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 on the front of it. Oh, no, 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 not that. I think he. sure you get it. Jazakallah khair, thank you. Can you. Not on. No, there we go. All right. So as I was mentioning, when the Battle of the Trench happened and this huge army was attacking Medina, and he said, how do we protect Medina? And the Prophet ﷺ consulted consultation. It was Salman al-Farsi who gave the suggestion that we should build a trench around Medina. We should dig a trench around Medina. And this was a type of you know, strategy that was not common to the Arabs. But again, you see that sense of community. First of all, so Salman made that contribution. So it's important that he participated. You see the divine plan. But also what's very remarkable that the scholars mention is that Salman was a newcomer to the community. He was a foreigner. He was a freed slave. Very recently started participating in the community. But nobody belittled him and nobody turned him down. And he felt completely comfortable offering. Think about the environment the Prophet ﷺ created where Salman felt comfortable sharing his opinion. And just very quickly... That when they started actually digging the trench, and the Prophet ﷺ assigned everyone a particular area to dig, and he said, basically, team up with your cousins or your brothers, and you know, people that you know, team up with your family members, your cousins and brothers, and start digging. Pick a spot and start digging. Salman anhu doesn't have any cousins or brothers. So he said, what do I do? So some of the muhajirun said, come join us. Because muhajirun, we're foreigners here. We're immigrants. We came here from somewhere else. You are a foreigner. You came here for someone else. You belong with us. You're one of our brothers. One of us. Come on. 
You're on team muhajirun. <laughs> right? And the Ansar said, Lala, you were here in Medina before Islam came to Medina. So Islam came to Medina after you were already in Medina. So you came to Medina before Islam, that makes you an Ansari. So you come, on to, you come on to our side, you dig with some of us. And what's really interesting is that you have to kind of look at some different narrations to extrapolate this fact. But the elder sahaba, the kibaru sahaba, they understood, they, they used to practice a little bit more discipline and adab with the Prophet ﷺ. Children and old people and Bedouins and newcomers, they didn't know what the protocol was, right? To them the Prophet ﷺ was just a guy they were meeting for the first time. Right? Or to kids, he was like a father figure. To the elders, he was like just somebody they would want to talk to. Right? And so they would very casually interact with him and he welcomed it. But the senior companions who had been there for decades with the Prophet, for over a decade with the Prophet, they were very particular. They were very um, well behaved with the Prophet. So they actually say is that we would not take every single dispute to the Prophet ﷺ. We didn't like to trouble him, bother him with little, little things. We, would, we were, and also we had to learn how to resolve this stuff on our own. Right, we had to figure out how to kind of handle our own problems. So we wouldn't take every little thing back to him. So that means that this argument between the Muhajirun and the Ansar would not be brought to the Prophet ﷺ's attention if it had not become a heated debate and argument. Think about how hotly this issue was being contested, how seriously they were arguing and debating the issue, that it became an argument that had to be brought to the attention of the Messenger And when it was brought to the attention of the Prophet how did the Prophet famously settle the debate? He said, Salmanu minna al-bayt. Salman will not dig with the Muhajirun, he will not dig with the Ansar, he'll dig with me and my family members, because Salman is my family. Right, so that's just a, a, a part of the story of Salman al-Farsi radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And the reason why Imam Tirmidhi brings this narration here is because it mentions the seal of prophethood. There's just two short narrations um, and we'll just wrap this up inshallah. Um, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مُحَمَدُ بْنُ بَشَّارِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا بِشُرْ بْنُ الْوَضَّحِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَبُوْ عَاقِيلَ الدَّوْرَقِي عَنْ أَبِي نَظْرَةَ الْعَوْقِي قال سألت أبا سعيد الخدري رضي الله تعالى عنه عن خاتم رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يعني خاتم النبوة فقال كان في ظهره بضعة ناشزة Abu Sa'id al-Khudri رضي الله تعالى عنه says or excuse me Abu Nadr al-Awfi says that I asked Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu ta'ala anhu about the seal of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, meaning the seal of prophethood. And he responded, he said that it was on his back and it was a raised piece of flesh on his back. Hadith number eight. Ahmad ibn al-Miqdam Abu al-Ash'ath al-Ijli al-Basri قال أخبرنا حماد بن زيد عن عاصم الأحول عن عبد الله بن سرجس 
قال أتيت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم وهو في ناس من أصحابه فدرت هكذا من خلفه فعرف الذي أريد فألقى الرداء عن ظهره فرأيت موضع الخاتم على كتفيه مثل الجمع حول حولها خيلان كأنها ثآليل فرجعت حتى استقبلته فقلت غفر الله لك يا رسول الله فقال ولك فقال القوم أستغفر لك يا رسول أستغفر لك رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فقال نعم ولكم ثم تلا هذه الآية واستغفر لذنبك وللمؤمنين والمؤمنات عبد الله بن سرجس رضي الله تعالى عنه or Sarjis excuse me he says that I came to the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and he was sitting amongst a group of his companions I went around him to the point where I was now standing behind him and he recognized what I was looking for so he lowered the shawl from his back and I saw the place of the seal of prophethood and it was he says that it was on his shoulders that which is a way of saying that it was in on his back in line with his shoulders between his shoulders and he says mithlul jum'i it was like a, a it was like a clump jum'a refers to like a fist but what he means it wasn't the size of a fist it just was a clump it was round around it were a few moles it was almost like from a dis when i looked at it from afar it seemed like it was thaalil in the arabic language means like a wart like kind of like something that's on the skin like it was a protrusion it stuck out from his skin it was on top of his skin then i went back to the, to sitting in front of him and i said may it's either i said may allah forgive you o messenger of allah and he doesn't mean this in a negative sense uh, or he's basically referring to the ayah of surah al-fath where he's saying god has forgiven all of your sins meaning allah has protected you from sins o messenger of allah and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said may allah forgive your sins as well so he said when i went back and i told the people this story they said or that the people that were sitting around him later on they said to me that the messenger of allah made dua for your forgiveness like wow the messenger of allah made dua for your forgiveness and i said yes and he also made dua for your forgiveness too and now either abdullah the narrator the sahabi he then recited the verse of the quran when they said when he said to them he's also asked for your forgiveness too he makes dua for you for your forgiveness too and they were like no he never said that to me he said it to you but i never said it to me then abdullah said haven't you read the ayah of the quran that allah commands the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam wastaghfir li dhanbik ask allah for forgiveness of your mistakes walil mu'minina wal mu'minat and for the believing men and women and some narrations mention that when the people asked him that the messenger of allah made dua for your forgiveness he said yes and he, may he make dua for your forgiveness too right like he's basically consoling them or saying that may he make dua for your forgiveness and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was still there and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam then recited the ayah wasaghfir li dhanbik wa lil mu'minina wal mu'minat that allah has commanded me of course i make dua for all of your forgiveness allah has commanded me to ask allah for forgiveness of my mistakes and also specifically to make dua for the forgiveness of the believing men and women 
Most commentators of the hadith, however, have said that these are more likely the words of the Sahabi, the narrator, Abdullah ibn Sarjis, who basically is reminding them that when they're so shocked by the fact like, oh my goodness, the Prophet ﷺ made dua for your forgiveness. And he said, well, he made dua for your forgiveness too. And they're like, no, no, he doesn't. He said, of course he does. Haven't you read the ayah of the Qur'an? Don't you pay attention? Allah commanded him to make dua for your forgiveness. So of course he does. Now, just to uh, wrap up the chapter, I just wanted to share uh, a couple of very just basic points that some of the scholars, the commentators on this topic and the muhaddithun that they make about this particular issue of the seal of prophethood. Number one, the first issue is, was the Prophet ﷺ born with this seal or not? Was he born with this seal or not? There are some narrations which give the idea that the seal, he was not born with it. That it appeared on his back after the angels had come and split his chest. And as we talked about in the Sirah class in the morning, that when they removed that, that black speck or clot from his heart and purified and washed his heart, that at that time the seal of Prophet had appeared. The other thing, another little detail that Ibn Hajar mentions that the seal of prophethood was on the back of the Prophet but it was not dead center. It was a little bit more towards the left. It was closer to his left shoulder blade than it was his right shoulder blade. And again, because of that, the, the nuance that they mention in that is, it again, it was aligned with his heart. The next thing, the next issue that some of the scholars talk about, Alama Munawi talks about this, that there are some narration from Asma bint Abi Bakr. That some of the Sahaba were in such shock after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ that they were just refusing to believe that the Prophet ﷺ had passed away. They were like, no, absolutely not. We will not believe it. And so Asma bin Tabi Bakr asked her sister Aisha, the body of the Prophet ﷺ was in the home, the apartment of Aisha anha. She asked permission from her sister, can I bring over some people? And show them the body of the Prophet She said, yes, bring him. And when they brought him in, that they actually lifted up the body of the Prophet slightly and they saw that the seal of Prophet on his back was gone. That the seal of Prophet was gone. And then the last issue that's discussed by uh, some of the narrators, Wahab ibn Munabba who, or Wahm ibn Munabbi, who is one of the tabi'un, a student of the Sahaba, he actually says that each and every single prophet had a similar physical feature or mark or seal of prophethood. But normally with most of the prophets, it would be on their right hand. The seal, the mark of prophethood would be on their right hand. For the Prophet ﷺ, it was placed on his back where it was placed. And that was a unique feature of the Prophet ﷺ. Because he was not just a prophet or a messenger, but he was the seal and the finality of prophets. So his mark was special and it was placed on his back. Wallahu ta'ala a'lamu bis-sawab. Of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Again, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to learn from the Prophet and implement all the lessons uh, and the, the, all the guidance and the wisdom that we discussed. Uh, today from the life of the Prophet ﷺ. May Allah give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, subhanakallah wa bihamdik. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta, nasaqfiru wa natubu ilayk. 